Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. It's squeezing more out of the white vote. It's almost like they're living an artificially enhanced life as a party. This is Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland. Win or lose, has President Trump planted a time bomb that will destroy the Republican Party? Or pick another colorful metaphor. They are taking this drug that ultimately will kill them, but, you know, for the time being, they can live on from one more election, just one more election, and what that drug is, is the white vote. They've been ramping up their percentages in recent elections, just turning the dial one more time, one more time, and winning an ever higher percentage of white votes at the same time, though, with a strategy that is alienating many voters of color and many voters who are immigrants. And all of that, ultimately, the bill comes due at a certain point. And on the flip side, what signs are we reading? What signs are we misinterpreting? What signs are hidden in plain sight that could potentially lead to a surprise Trump victory on November 3rd. On the one hand, there are these signs that Biden could win by a landslide. And then on the other, we were just thinking of, okay, so how could how could Trump pull it off? Because when you would talk to Republican Party officials, especially at the local level, they're totally convinced that there's no trouble at all. You know, there's nothing to see here. Trump's going to win and he's going to win big. You know, th this time around, the electoral map is completely different. The Democratic nominee is different. He, he brings different strengths. Uh, you know, the Great Lakes states, the industrial Midwest are not what we, we thought. There is no blue wall. This misconception of the so-called blue wall as this unbreakable barrier or if there is, it's severely cracked. Uh, as opposed to a barrier that Republicans had to break and should try to break in order to, to open new paths to getting to 270 electoral votes. That misconception uh, shattered along with the blue wall in 2016 when Donald Trump won Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin to win the presidency. In 2020, we're seeing that the idea that the Sun Belt is locked down. The Sun Belt is locked down in the Republican Party is also up for grabs. Very much up for grabs. Charlie, first off, introduce yourself for any new listeners who have uh, joined us recently and, and aren't familiar with the legend of Charlie Metesian Esquire. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Charlie Metesian, Politico's senior politics editor. And friend of the pod. I was uh, into Nerdcast before Nerdcast was cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, Charlie, the preponderance of evidence right now points to Joe Biden not just leading the presidential race, but leading pretty big. He's ahead in almost all the swing state polls, some by large margins, especially in those key states we mentioned before. So we're, we're just a week and some change now from Election Day. What's your read on all of this right now? What's your analysis of what's going on? So I think in past years, you add all of those variables up and you would come to the conclusion that Joe Biden is in a trajectory to make the White House. Now, having said all that, based on the experience of 2016, I'm, I'm really not sure. The most spectacular and stunning political shakeup in modern American history. His supporters came out where we didn't think they were. Polling was wrong, we were wrong, everything was wrong. Oh, we were wrong. Clearly we were wrong. 
2016 led many of us, and I know including you because we've talked about this for a while, it, it gave a lot of people in the business of you know, forecasting or reporting on elections or analyzing elections a huge dose of humble pie. It's, I want to remember that modesty about what we're able to predict. I mean, there's still lots of known unknowns out there that we're not sure about. And so on the one hand, for most of this election, I thought that, you know, it was still pretty tight and there's a very good chance Donald Trump could win. I still think there's a good chance Donald Trump could win, but it at the same time, over the last week or so, I've also begun to, to think through some other options that I think are very plausible, including a very big Biden win that almost could be of a uh, landslide uh, variety. Not, not landslide as in 1964, but landslide by modern political standards, which you know is probably 10 points or so, because you could certainly make a pretty persuasive argument as to why Joe Biden is winning pretty comfortably. But having said that, Donald Trump is like nothing we've ever seen. And I think that there are still ways that he could win this election. Absolutely. Let's jump into those in a moment. But I think first, you know, I'm, I'm curious kind of the way you step through this thought process that you just described. Like kind of the way I've thought about it from the state perspective is that everything starts out kind of in that inner circle revolving around those three Midwest or Great Lakes states that Trump flipped in 2016 to win the White House, right? You've got uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, and then Pennsylvania. And the polling for Biden has been pretty consistently good in Michigan and Wisconsin, maybe a few wobbles in Pennsylvania, but looking pretty good now. And then kind of when you when you expand, like maybe a ring outside that, you get into Arizona, which is kind of moving quickly, Florida and North Carolina, which have been close on every election night for, you know, three plus elections running now. And then there's, after that, there's this kind of another ring of states that have really opened up in the last few weeks or a month. And that's where you're talking about, like the path looking like, or more potential paths looking like they're opening up for Biden, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And, you know, I'm not even somebody who thinks about Texas right now, even though I the am. polls would suggest that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I, and I don't think that's really uh, – you're, you're way off the mark there either when you think about some of the trend lines and when you look at the polling coming out and the different scenarios. I guess I'm mainly talking about Georgia. I mean, Georgia is a decent-sized state. It's mm-hmm. a state that Joe Biden has no business being competitive or winning in. And yet here we are in the final weeks of the election talking about Georgia. And, you know, Georgia is a state that has not gone Democratic since, what, 92 or 96? And so Joe Biden is winning there in some polls. The suburbs have really cratered on Donald Trump. And the only way he wins that state is if there's a a very big rural turnout in Georgia. So, yeah, I mean, things look very good for Biden at the moment. But again, Trump is a once in a generation or once in a lifetime politician with a following. And I, I don't necessarily even mean that as, you know, he's a particularly gifted guy. He's just somebody who has a following that is unbelievably loyal to him and will turn out. And so you never really know. And what we've discovered from modern polling is modern polling is not always able to accurately capture that following or how much it will turn out. You know, one of the interesting things about Georgia in particular that you mentioned, the idea that like Biden has no business being competitive there, I feel like Georgia is the perfect example of just how fast things are moving right now in in th- these long-term political shifts that are shaping this election are just 
moving at breakneck pace. And Georgia, to me, is, is a perfect example of that because you, when you look at like 2017 and, and that special election in Georgia, that was kind of like, it was one of the defining political moments of the early Trump presidency, right? Well, Republican Karen Handel defeats Democrat John Ossoff in the special runoff election, the most expensive congressional race in history. National Democrats just at like at once becoming obsessed with this little stretch of suburban Atlanta that had never been competitive before. And they lost the special election and then they actually narrowly flipped the district in 2018. McMath is the first Democrat to win here in 40 years. But things have moved so rapidly since then. And this is a district that had never been competitive before. It's not competitive this year either. It's just that Democrats basically have it locked up. And, and that's that's emblematic of this big suburban shift that you're talking about. Yeah, and I think it's a great state to focus on because they've got lots of important races this year, competitive House races. There are some open seats. There are two Senate races in November. They may not finish in November. They may end up getting concluded in January runoffs. But, you know, two Senate races, which is highly unusual, and a competitive presidential race. So in many ways, you know, I've looked at it as the center of the political universe this year. But but more important, I've looked at it really closely because, to me, it is the place where we are going to see the effect of the time bomb that Donald Trump has planted. If he loses this election, his legacy is going to go on for a long time and not the positive parts of his legacy. The legacy meaning he may have planted a time bomb that destroys the Republican Party because we've talked about this a lot before. The leftward move of the suburbs has been happening for a couple decades now. Many suburbs in the North and in Northeast and the Midwest, they have been transitioning to the Democratic Party or becoming more competitive less Republican since the around the 90s. But what we haven't seen is suburbs through the Sun Belt move leftward and show any sort of openness towards the Democratic Party. And now we see that, and that is a product of the Trump era. We saw it in 2018. It powered the House majority. And what I mean here is you can draw an arc from the Richmond suburbs south through Atlanta all the way west through the Texas suburbs and the suburbs of Dallas-Fort Worth and Houston and then keep going to uh, Phoenix and Maricopa County and all the way to Orange County, California. There is an arc there of once mighty Republican suburbs that are all beginning to crumble. And it's all because all of those places are not fans of Donald Trump. I mean, there are some historic trends at work, too. I think this was happening in any case. The party was no longer in alignment with its suburban voters as the suburbs have diversified and become more highly educated. But much of it is Donald Trump. We saw the seeds of this in 2016, where in these heavily Republican suburbs, Trump was actually, even as he was running better statewide than Mitt Romney, he was running behind Mitt Romney's performance. So yeah, I mean, even if Donald Trump loses on election night, that legacy continues on and is a huge problem going forward for the Republican Party. And at this point, I think it's a good moment to flip this whole conversation on its head and talk about what you brought up before about the reasons why you're not counting Donald Trump out despite the big polling deficit and a bunch of other factors. You actually edited a story this week by our colleague David Siders about these hidden factors, some of them hiding in plain sight, kind of, that could lead to a surprise Trump victory, that if he were to pull it out, we'd look back on these things and say, this was a big factor. What went into that story? What are the things that Politico identified? It's interesting to ask about that story, Scott, because we talked about that for a long time and spent a long time in the run-up trying to figure out how to make that story work. And it came out of discussions we were having about 
on the one hand, there are these signs that Biden could win by a landslide, but nobody was willing to write that. And then on the other, we were just thinking of, okay, so how could how could Trump pull it off? Because when you would talk to Republican Party officials, especially at the local level, they're totally convinced that there's no trouble at all. You know, there's nothing to see here. On November 3rd, President Trump is going to win, and I think he's going to win big. Trump's going to win, and he's going to win big. And so we were trying to kind of square all that, and we discovered there were these known unknowns or hidden variables that were still out there and weren't really answerable at this point. And if any of them came through, then it's a very different kind of election, and the polls that we're seeing are really missing it all. And so, for example, Republican registration, voter registration. We see that Republican voter registration in some key states has ticked up uh, in some very important swing states and outpaced Democratic voter registration. Now, this is happening at a time when what's always been a strength of the Democratic Party, their door-to-door canvassing and their grassroots operation, it's been in hibernation. The Biden campaign shut it down because of COVID-19. And so they have been lacking that essential element of their ground game this year, while Republicans have been going door-to-door the entire time. They didn't care. They said, we're going to continue doing it. We're just going to, you know, do it with some modicum of safety measures. They continue doing it. Now, what does that mean? Are these voter registration gains somehow a reflection of that? We don't really know. We know that the Trump campaign and also state Republican officials have been bragging for months now about their ground game, about how it's unprecedented, how they have devoted a crazy amount of money to it, how you know they have all these metrics for all the doors they've knocked on and all of that. And they are talking about wild, crazy enthusiasm in the Republican base. And we see some measure of that in the polls, that Republicans are also pretty juiced up about the election. So is that something that we're missing, this idea that there is a Republican ground game that hasn't been picked up on yet? So that's one of the the known unknowns. Here's the other one. Everyone knows the story by now. These crazy Democratic early voting turnout numbers. I mean, it's surging. It's every state appears to be setting a record of one kind or another in terms of the early vote. We see the videos of the long lines and all of that. You can see hundreds of people here. And what you can't see is that actually inside the government building, it loops around and snakes. But here's the other thing. We don't know if that's going to be enough to overcome what all political professionals expect is going to be a surge of in-person voting by Republicans on Election Day. Now, what makes this uncertain is that in the past, early voting was not as demonized as it is now. But the president, for you know his own personal reasons, has demonized the idea of mail-in voting. Well, take a look at West Virginia, mailmen selling the ballots. They're being sold. They're being dumped in rivers. This is a horrible thing for our country. And so Republicans seem to have followed suit and they are not mailing in their early votes in many states at the level they've done it in the past. And so they are prepared for a big in-person vote on Election Day. How big? We just don't know yet. Is it going to be enough to overcome these monster lines that we're seeing everywhere? We also don't know that that early voting is all Democratic. We suspect it. In some states, we have a better idea. But, you know, there is no uniform reporting standards of who these voters are. You know, there's lots of reasons to infer that they're Democrats, but we're not certain. The thing that's so interesting to me about this is that this electorate is very unstable. And what I mean by that is there isn't like this group of voters in the middle that's kind of undecided or swinging back and forth, there are large groups that are running past each other, basically. There there are a lot of people who voted for Trump in 2016 who are planning to vote for Joe Biden 
in 2020. There are also people who didn't vote for Trump in 2016 who are absolutely going to be voting for him this time, whether they didn't vote or some people who may have voted for Hillary Clinton or for a third party candidate. And I think especially with a lot of the adjustments that have been made after 2016 and how polling is conducted, I think we're capturing that. But calibrating these two forces moving past each other in real time strikes me as kind of like a fundamentally different thing to try and get right than maybe in a time of more stability when there was more of this narrow slice of, or at least the thinking was that there was this narrow slice of people in the middle who were the target of all this politicking. Right. And, and I'm also curious to know about the Republican ground game this year. So for example, we know that they poured a ton of money into sophisticated data operations to identify voters. I mean, because when you talk to the Trump campaign, their argument is this, is that there is an entire electorate out there that hasn't voted before. We're talking about first-time voters that respond to us, and we're going to be able to get them out, and you're not capturing any of that. And, you know, there is some reason to believe that's true, because that is how they won the presidency in 2016, by amping up the rural turnout in places like Pennsylvania and, I love Pennsylvania. and Wisconsin. From Oshkosh to Eau Claire. They almost won Minnesota that way. And so they were focused on, you know, what drops they can still squeeze from the lemon. And, you know, according to them, you know, the, these sophisticated matching up to voter files and identifying all these folks, according to them, they have been spending four years perfecting it. So who knows? I mean, maybe they, we are going to see a bigger turnout of those kinds of people than in 2016. It's just it's not even it's just not clear. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think what you said before about the potential of a Biden landslide, too, I think it's it's good to kind of try and come at the story from a few different directions. There's no there's no law that says that we have to like pick what we think is going to happen and then just hammer that nail every day for for weeks and weeks. Arguably that's what caused so many people to be so surprised in 2016. There's there's a range of possibilities here and we can you know, we can devote some time to investigating, hey, what are what are the hidden signs that that say Trump might be doing better than we expect. As long as I, you know, I think we're devoting some time on the other end. It's like, hey, what are the signs that Biden might be doing better than we expect too? Which would be, as you pointed out before, a pretty massive result. Yeah, and I think that's one silver lining of this election is that, you know, just from the media perspective is, you know, 2016, the outcome reflected so poorly on us in so many ways. You know, in, in some aspects, I, you know, I argue with friends and I would argue with anyone that talks about how crappy the coverage was and media was all focused on Hillary emails and all that stuff. And because it's just not true. I know a lot of people believe that and a lot of people will listen to this today and be outraged and, you know, come at me on Twitter or whatever. But the, the fact is, if you were looking for good coverage, there was so much of it in 2016. There's even more of it in 2020. But where we went wrong in the media was, I mean, there were lots of places, but it was mostly having to do with hubris and also being sloppy and not paying attention to different signs that were out there or dismissing them and being over-reliant on the polls and not thinking about the electorate in the correct ways. And I think from everything I can tell, certainly within our operation, as you know, Scott, at Politico, but also in other newsrooms, I mean, there's a level of caution and modesty that I think has led to some good coverage this year and I think has led people to avoid moving in the direction of assuming, well, the national polls show a big Biden win. He's also winning in all the swing states. He has more money. He's doing more advertising. When you look at all, you know, all the different variables, he's going to win big. And I think we've avoided that. And I think that's a really good thing. The one drawback, though, is that this is all happening, you know, against the backdrop of this coronavirus crisis. At this rate, the U.S. could top 9 million coronavirus cases and 230,000 deaths 
by Election Day. You know, reporters have not been able to get out and we have not been able to cover a campaign in a traditional way. And I think that has left some blind spots. I think it's left some blind spots. I think it's also been an opportunity to to kind of fully dispel some of those bad habits, too. You don't end up with the problem of reporters kind of getting trapped in the bubble of the campaign they're traveling with every day because they're not traveling with the campaign every day and stuff like that. It's maybe freeing everyone in a way to look at some different stuff other than crowd sizes and reporting on the same speech over and over and things like that. That's a great point. But, it, you know, the, the downside of that is then reporters all talk about yard signs. You know, <laughs> this is a, a, an ongoing joke within our office about, you know, how useless the yard signs are and how frequently people will still use them. Well, you know, I was in this place and it was all Trump yard signs or all Biden yard signs and suggesting that somehow this means something. And I've been guilty of it myself, you know, uh, but we're trying to grasp it at almost anything here in an environment where none of us have really been able to get out. And so we've had to, you know, think through new ways of reporting or trying to understand the dynamics at work. Yeah. And that's interesting because I think, you know, ultimately it like boiled down very, very, very small. Like Trump ended up winning narrowly in 2016 because he was able to kind of push his margin of the vote from, you know, the 58, 59, 60 percent that Republicans had been getting for a little while up to two thirds or 70 percent. And, you know, that's not something you really can capture by being somewhere, right? That like 10 percent shift. But I think 2016 helped people realize what they were missing, right? That they were filling in blind spots with assumptions that I think people are trying a lot harder not to assume this time around. Yeah, and I think that the media was certainly operating with an idea of a static map, a static electoral college map, and that was a huge flaw in our thinking. And what I mean by a static map is that, you know, probably for four or five presidential elections preceding 2016, we had what amounted to uh, trench warfare in American political elections where we did not have a 50-state presidential election. Really, what happened was the presidency was decided in a universe of six to eight or maybe even 10 swing states, and they rarely varied. They were the same ones in election after election. And so you had a situation where maybe two-thirds of our 50 states voted the same way in election after election after election. And so that was the map that most people thought we were continuing to operate under when, in fact, that map was no longer operational for lots of reasons. And among those reasons, what we discovered was the Obama coalition was not transferable. And people expected that it would be, that Hillary would walk in and, and uh, Barack Obama would endorse her and see, we would get the same exact map. Uh, that turned out not to be true. Uh, other assumptions, you know, I don't think we really counted on how unpopular Hillary Clinton would be. She turned out to be much more unpopular than people uh, imagine, or certainly the Democrats imagine. Now, you know, you can have a discussion over, was she really unpopular? Was there misogyny? You know, there are lots of reasons why she was unpopular, and I think you could stipulate to any percentage constituted uh, misogynistic voters. There were still a ton of Americans that just couldn't stand the Clintons and Hillary in particular. So I think that was an area that people missed as well. Now, I think people understand that the map is different. The Democratic nominee is different. He, he brings different strengths. But also the most important thing is just that the map is different. We're not locked in. The industrial Midwest is not what we thought. There is no blue wall that runs through the north. Or if there is, it's severely cracked. 
And the idea that the Sun Belt is locked down in the Republican Party is also up for grabs. Totally, which, you know, is the the root of my Texas obsession, right? And why I think Biden could win there. And I think also... I know certainly like I've found like the last few years very instructive in like abandoning this notion of ceilings and floors, right? That we've just seen with every successive election, Republicans kind of dropping through what they thought previously was the floor of their suburban support. And that Democrats, in a story stretching back to 2012, keep doing worse and worse in rural areas than they thought was possible. Even now, as we're seeing these big suburban shifts towards Democrats, we're seeing Republicans still think they can squeeze a few more points out of rural voters moving to Trump in, in places like Georgia, in places like Texas, all over the map. And not just rural vote. Yeah. It's squeezing more out of the white vote. I mean, because that's the real story of what Republicans have been able to do. They have kind of postponed. It's almost like they're living an artificially enhanced life as a party. They They are taking this drug that ultimately will kill them, but you know, for the time being, they can live on from one more election, just one more election. And what that drug is, is the white vote. They've been ramping up their percentages in recent elections, just turning the dial one more time, one more time, and winning an ever higher percentage of white votes at the same time, though, with a strategy that is alienating many voters of color and many voters who are immigrants. And all of that ultimately... (laughs) The bill comes due at a certain point. I mean, that is really, in in a lot of ways, the story of how the uh, New Deal coalition started. That bill comes due at some point. Charlie, one last question. After you worked on this this piece with David Siders about, you know, the, the hidden signs in this election that are going well for Trump, did anyone raise any interesting points that kind of made you reconsider anything in the story or add any any new thoughts to that side of the ledger? You, you know this as well as I. The truth is that in... In a polarized environment like this, no one really raises points. They scream at you. They just don't <laughs> want to hear anything that challenges their preconceived notions of the race. So, you know, obviously uh, we hear a lot of, you know, Republicans who think, you know, the media is crooked and uh, has already assumed Trump's going to lose and we don't get it and they're coming for us and whatever. And then you've got <laughs> on the left, uh, you know, all these folks that really have adopted the Trumpian tactics and uh, feel that the media is also corrupt and, you know, stop with the, you know, me tooism and the phony balance and just say what it is that Democrats are going to win big. So you know, those are the kinds of criticisms that, that uh, we got. Got it. Well, you know, on the bright side, in a couple of weeks, we're going to know what happened. Uh, hopefully. I mean, there, there could be some some counting problems, but hopefully we'll know in a couple of weeks what happened. Yeah, a couple of weeks, maybe a month. Uh, who knows? I mean, that is, uh, that's another free, that's another Nerdcast entirely, you know, what happens after election night, you know, whether it's the red mirage and and who who knows what else uh, the president has up his sleeve. Yeah. Well, Charlie, thanks so much for, for taking the time to chat. Scott, it's so good to be back and also to hear your mellifluous tones. <laughs> And last night, Trump and Biden had their final debate before the election. You can read all our analysis at Politico.com. But for your listening pleasure, here's a few highlights. Or maybe lowlights. Highlights, whatever. Anyway, in case you missed it, here we go. We're about to go into a dark winter. A dark winter. And he has no clear plan and there's no prospect that there's going to be a vaccine available for the majority of the American people before the middle of next year. President Trump, your reaction, he says you have no plan. I don't think we're going to have a dark winter at all. We're opening up our country. He says that we're, uh, you know, we're learning to live with it. People are learning to die with it. I take full responsibility. 
It's not my fault that he came here. It's China's fault. He thinks he's running against somebody else. He's running against Joe Biden. I beat all those other people because I disagreed with them. All of the emails, the emails, the horrible emails. Do you they have a plan cages. to reunite the kids? Yes, we're working families? on it very, we're, we're trying very hard. But a lot of these kids come out without the parents. They come over through cartels and through coyotes and through gangs. You know what, North Korea, we're not in a war. We have a good relationship. We had a good relationship with Hitler before he, in fact, invaded Europe. I, I am the least racist person. I can't even see the audience because it's so dark. But I don't care who's in the audience. I'm the least racist person in this room. Okay. Come on. This guy is a dog whistle about as big as a foghorn. All right, that's our show. Our producer this week is Adrian Hurst. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. Subscribe to Nerdcast wherever you listen, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you like what you hear, check out some of our other podcasts, Politico Dispatch, Politico Energy, and Pulse Check, just to name a few. And we've got a brand new podcast series from Politico, Global Translations. The first episode is out this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>